Howdy. How y'all doing? Uh, it's good to be back. I didn't expect to be back so soon in the pulpit again. Uh, Pastor Michael got a, had a stomach bug late last night, and so uh, they called the bullpen again. Uh, so, but I'm, I'm happy to be here and, and, or to be able to bring God's word for us this morning. Um, but as we do, I just want to, there's a couple more announcements that I want to make. Uh, one particularly uh, is that uh, we're going to have some more information about it, but on March 5th at 4 o'clock, uh, there's going to be a special worship service for um, a little collective of churches that have all kind of grown out of or stemmed or connected to North Shore Baptist Church, which is the, the church in Queens that, where we were planted uh, out of. And so uh, we're going to have a time. It's going to be held at First Baptist Church in Manhattan. Uh, it's on the Upper West Side. Um, one of, one of the, the, the former pastors, he's preached here, Harry Fujiwara, that he's a pastor of that church. And we're all going to gather, and then the event's called For Worship. And so it's a time of worship, testimony, hearing God's word, and it'll, it'll be a great time for this network of churches that are knit together just kind of in terms of um, uh, just our own common history to be able to come together and worship. So that's, everyone's invited. That's, uh, it's going to be March 5th from 4 to 6. So we'll keep uh, telling you more about it, but just so you can mark your calendars. Um, the other bit of news, and it, it, this is not, it's sad news, but uh, our, our sister Tiff Kim, her, her, her father passed away this week. Uh, they're, they're still in California. He had been in long-term care. Um, so just want to be in prayer for her. Even so, they're actually going to extend their stay uh, in California another week. Uh, John and uh, JB and, and Tiff and, and the boys. So please be in prayer for her as she mourns and grieves uh, the loss of her dad. He had not fully unexpected. Uh, it wasn't. He, he had been struggling for a, a, a couple years, but um, still sad. And so please lift up our sister Tiff as she uh, mourns and her family mourns. So. Uh, let's, let's go to the Lord now and pray, even as we begin. Father, we come to you this morning, knowing that and longing for you to show up, longing for us to see with, with, with fresh eyes, that you would speak to us, that you would help us, that you would meet us in our need. And as you do, that we would be encouraged by you, helped by you, comforted by you. But we, we feel the aches in our body from shoveling a lot of snow yesterday. We... we we feel the, the, the pressures of a week that is facing us. We fear the grief, even as our, our dear sister Tiff feels, of loss. And even Tom and, and the Ewans, still grieving his father's passing. Lord, we, we feel this in our bones. So Lord, we ask you, the God of all comfort, to comfort us even in our afflictions that we may know your presence even in hard seasons. 
that you would strengthen us by your grace and your, your spirit that is within us, that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that we would walk in great hope of what is to come, and in great confidence knowing that you are with us. Father, we pray for Pastor Michael, who is not well. We pray that you would bring health to his body. Lord, there are others that are sick, whether it's COVID, whether it's a stomach bug, whether just a a season of sickness and, and just being tired and worn down. We pray that you would, you would remind us that you were a good healer. That even in, when we're reminded that our bodies are weak, that, that I pray that it would run, drive us to you, that we would cling to you, that we would hope more fully in you. Father, even now as we open your word, if I'm the only one talking, uh, we're wasting our time. So, Lord, I ask that your spirit would speak, even through me, for your glory, for our good, that we would be built up as a church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Not a great transition, but do you remember Back to the Future 2? That's my favorite Back to the Future, just for the record. Um, but Marty goes... You know, they, go, they, get, they go to the future. I think it was, I forget, we've already passed the year. They were, we don't have the flying cars or the hoverboards, but we've already passed that year. Um, but they go to the future, and if you recall, Marty buys Gray's Sports Almanac. Do you guys remember that? And so he buys the Sports Almanac, and it tells you all the sp- scores from like 1955 all the way to the future. So you can look at all these sporting events. And Marty thinking, I'm going, back, I'm going back in time. I'm going to make a few bucks. But, but what happens? Remember, Biff, the, the, his nemesis, steals it. And that creates this alternate universe where Biff, strangely looking like Donald Trump, I, I think we should make that comparison, right? He builds this evil empire based on the future knowledge of, of, of knowing the scores, the question is, the plan was, if you knew the future, how would that change you? What would you do if you knew the future? What would you do? How would you do it? Why would you do it? It would likely fundamentally change everything, our attitudes, our actions. It would create a certainty for you, a confidence for you about what you do and why you do it. Look, everyone in this room, we all think about the future. Maybe you're thinking about it right now. We arrange our whole lives, our career, our education, our relationships, our location, based on what we want to happen in the future. We try to arrange the future outcomes we want, but we all know there's no guarantee that we'll get them. There's no guarantee that we, there's a, going to be a return on investment. Look, it isn't wrong to plan for the future. In fact, we should. We should think about it. And God wants us to think about it. 
But he, does, he wants us to think about it in a way that is grounded in him, not in frittering away our attempts to manage it. God invites us to begin with the future that he has secured for us and then look backwards to, into our present from a point of certainty, at least about ultimate things. And so with that, would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, 28? Now, I know we spent last year going through the book of 1 John, but even though it's a little letter and we spent a lot of time in it, there's still more to grow, uh, learn from it. God's word is deep, and so I, I hope that this is not just going to be, oh, we already we read this passage before, but that we would grow in it. You see, God wants us to have confidence in our standing, in our daily lives. Regardless of where you are or what your past has been like, the Christian life is not one to be spent, marked by anxiety. God doesn't save his people. He doesn't call them to himself to leave them in the dark. Rather, he assures us of who we are. And he, and he gives us a future which then grounds us in confidence in a, in, a, in a way that changes everything, particularly our daily lives. So this is what John writes at the end of chapter 2. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John begins by saying, remember who you are. Rest in the fact that you are already a child of God. Several years ago, um, when uh, we were living in Kentucky when I was at seminary, uh, we were at this children's Easter event at the school. It was like 150 plus kids and their family. After lots of sugar, lots of games, and running around, they, they, they tried to wrangle all these kids inside for the Easter story. And my daughter, Kaya, who was just about a year old, she was happily like exploring this space. So she was learning how to like move around. She was crawling. And so she would kind of go out, move away from me, and then kind of look around and then crawl back. She did this oftentimes. And the dude that was uh, running the event, I don't think he had kids because he doesn't understand yelling into a microphone when you have sugared up kids, what that will do to the room. But he yelled, he's like, is everyone ready? And 150 sugared up kids scream. But Kaya doesn't know what's going on. She's about five feet away from me. And as the, as the crowd erupts, Kaya just, just shelled up and started shaking. She turned around and saw me and then 
and then scooted back to me. And she just squeezed me and sat in my lap. She was, she was shaken. She needed to be comforted. She needed to know that she was safe in her daddy's arms. This is where the church in 1 John is. They were spiritually shaken by teachers within the church who began to teach a different message. And on account of these false teachers, you may remember that the church was shaken and made to question their own assurance of faith, their own salvation, their own confession. The church had experienced significant crisis. Members of their own church, presumably their own leaders, began to teach a different message. And so John writes this letter as a loving spiritual father to these, these brothers and sisters in the faith. He writes to them who are a shaken congregation, a confused congregation, a congregation who needs to be assured. And we can sympathize with this church. People that they knew and trusted began to teach contrary to what they had first heard. These, these teachers ended up leaving the church, but it took its toll. The people were left confused and lacked confidence in their own standing. So again, John is writing to reassure them. John is writing even in this passage, to demonstrate that the church need not be uneasy. Rather, that they can have this rock-solid assurance in their position and identity in Jesus. John writes to assure them of their confidence in Christ. And he's saying, as we stay with him, as we remain, as we sit on his lap and hold him tight, and we rest in who he, who he has made us to be, children of God, then we will have assurance. Friend, I don't know about you, brother and sister, I don't know about you, but I bet that believing in this assurance and, and holding fast to it is a, is a much more common struggle than we may openly share. Should I not touch anything? <laughs> I bet you a lot of us struggle with this confidence. Am I I really saved? Does God really love me? John is actually saying, he's writing this to you then too, that we can have confidence. He reminds them of who they are, that they are children of God. John's message is that he and the apostles have taught what came from God. He's saying, look, I'm not making this stuff up. God has actually given it to me to give to you. Look back at verse 24 in, our, uh, in chapter 2. He says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide from you. And what you have heard from the beginning, if what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. He goes on, I I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. That's the promise of God. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, 
and is true and is no lie, just as it has, just as it, excuse me, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The false teachers were either were, were, de- were deceived and were, were knowingly or unknowingly leading others into that deception. Things that salvation and a righteous life can be attained apart from Jesus. But God knows, but, but John knows that this is a lie. And this is what he wrote back in his gospel. If you, if you were to turn back to John chapter 1, he says, It's the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will, nor of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Don't you remember what Jesus said in the upper room to his disciples? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John is saying in in verse 28, abide in this truth and the things that you've already heard. Stay there. Rest in him. Cling to him. For apart from him, there is no life. There is no assurance. It is on your own. John loves this idea of abiding or remaining. And, 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 and throughout this letter, as we, if you recall, when we looked at 1 John, even in his gospel, he, he talks about it often. And he repeats it over and over again. And it's almost like this personal mantra of his, maybe. Abide in Jesus. Rest in him. Cling to him. Hey, you remember in John 15 when he says that we are to hold fast to Jesus like, uh, like a branch holds fast to the vine. That's how we're supposed to abide in Jesus. Just as Kaya came and grabbed onto me and remained close to me on my lap, squeezing, knowing the reassuring and loving embrace, is this is what John tells us the way that we are reassured in our own faith, even when circumstances or others seek to disrupt that confidence. Look, I don't, maybe you need to hear this. You're not in control. Just wait, just, just let's live this week. There are going to be things that come down the pike at you that you will not be able to control. That will, if left to yourself, will upset your assurance and your confidence and your ability to control the world around you, to make the future happen. John is grounding us in something that is so much deeper that gives us a confidence that regardless of what's coming, we can be settled. He says, abide in him. Be, be, and as we, because we, we, we abide in the one who is the eternal one, the ancient of days. And as we do, we're reminded and re-energized by the perfect love of a heavenly father who has made us his very own. Do you see what, 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 what God has done through Jesus? Why we abide in him is because through Jesus, we have been adopted as sons and daughters. 
Just even the very thought of thinking of being a son or daughter makes John's heart skip. He says, little children abide in him. Look at verse 3. Do you see what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God? And so we are. They have received the love of God. They have been marked by this love. And God says, I'm making you part of my own family. You ever think about how much acceptance, love, approval, safety, kind of sh- the presence or absence of those things, how much that shapes our everyday lives? These are all things we need. If you think about it, a, a, a child that is born, if a child's deprived of these things, acceptance, of love, of approval, of safety, I mean, almost without a doubt, they're going to fail to mature and, and be relationally and emotionally healthy. But not just children, we need it too, don't we? Think about your job, particularly when restructuring has taken place. How much does that shape your identity? The anxiety, the fear, and the internal tension we feel when we do not have acceptance, when we do not have approval, when we do not have safety, when we do not have love, we're often crippled by that. It leads us to to all sorts of different pursuits to try to attain it. Sometimes we escape, we try to go numb with Netflix and a half gallon of ice cream. Other times, we run to, to numb it with pornography. Other times, we, we try to drown it with alcohol, recreational drug use, prescription pills. Sometimes we become codependent on others because we need it. Our own mood is often so determined by the people that we need that approval of. When they're upset, I'm upset. When they're happy, I'm happy. When they're gone, I'm lost. Because this is who we're made. God actually made us to long for these things. But we're made... temporary, worldly things will not actually satisfy the deeper parts. We're made to long for these things and to receive them from God himself. Primarily, and then we can, then they're in the right priority that we can share them with others. John is saying that we actually have this already if you're in Christ. Now. He doesn't say, hey, you will be called the sons of God or the children of God. He says, you are called that. This is your present reality. He says, do you see the kind of love that God has poured out for you? When, when Michael taught, uh, preached on this sermon last year, he, he, he brought out this, this thing that I think is important to remember. He, this, do you see what kind of love the Father has? It can be translated, uh, of, what, of what country does this love come from? This is an otherworldly kind of love. Do you you see what unearthly love the Father has given in order 
to us in order that we may be called the children of God? God the Father has loved us with a love that is not from this world, but it is, it is broken in. And that love has come to us, not as just an impersonal force, but as a person in the name of Jesus. Jesus comes to earth from a different world in order to bring salvation by dying the death that we deserved. He came to be the the sacrifice for our sin, and on the account of his life, his death, and his resurrection, he now stands before the Father as our advocate, as our helper. He bore the, the full measure of God's wrath towards sin, what we just read about in the New City Catechism, a rejection of rebellion of God. He bore the the punishment for that so that we, through him, may know the infinite measure of God's unearthly love. If we are in Christ, if we have trusted in Christ, if we receive this salvation, then we are part of God's family. Because of God's love, those who have trusted are called children of God now. And this new identity as God's children is not, again, a future thing or or, or perhaps kind of thing. And it's not even just merely metaphorical. We're not just called that. We are that in Christ. The eternal God has brought us into his eternal family, giving us an identity that actually satisfies us down to the core, settles our heart, assures us, gives us a confidence. It is is full of acceptance. It is full of love. It is full of approval. It is full of safety. It creates a bedrock for us to stand on. going to the beach, you ever sit in Ocean, I love, the beach in Ocean City, look, I've lived in Jamaica, the beach there is beautiful, the water is crystal clear, it's very warm, but Ocean City sand, there's nothing like Ocean City sand. And walking into the ocean, it's typically not very rocky, it's not shelly, there aren't sea urchins, sometimes it looks like iced tea, but that's okay. But that sand, hey, if you ever sit in the, like, the, the little, uh, the, the little shallows when the, the little breakers roll in. What happens because it's so soft, the sand? Your feet just keep sinking. A lot of us are trying to stand on that in that in the, in the, the opening pool. And we kind of have to keep sucking our feet up because we're sinking down, getting your ankle twisted. God's actually giving us bedrock to stand on. Our identity is something concrete. God has demonstrated his great love by giving Christ to us who has brought us into the family of God by his blood, through his blood, all by his grace. Friend, if God would, brother and sister, if God would give his son to save us and bring us into his fold, into his family, then we can have confidence in our identity before him. Even when we stumble, even when we fall, 
even when we're confused, even when things are coming at us and we can't make sense of them. This is where we're to abide, in the loving, saving, mighty arms of Jesus. Our Savior, our King, our brother, our friend. The way we do this, Don Carson says this. It's a little convoluted, but I think it's helpful. He says, the way that we remain is is, is nothing less than the outcome of persevering dependence on the vine, driven by faith, embracing all of the believer's life and product of his witness. I'm going to read that again. Again, Don Carson, a simple sentence to him is very confusing for most of us. Don Carson says this, it's nothing less than the outcome. Remaining in Christ is nothing less than the outcome of persevering dependence on the vine, which is driven by faith. That is that we cling to Jesus by faith. And faith, not just that we believed once back in the day that Jesus died for our sins, but a daily, an ongoing faith. Every morning I wake up, Jesus, I'm going to throw my lot in with you today. And in order to do this, we we believe in him, remain in our confession. We look daily towards him, and then we need to cultivate our relationship with him. We need to take time to consider who Jesus is. He's the way, the truth, and the life, not just for salvation, but even Tuesday. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the light of the world, the king of kings. And as we learn to depend on him, to rest in him, and and, and remember he has has welcomed us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We abide in him by learning about him and who he is. And what he's like. We don't abide in him to get him to like us. Rather, because he has already demonstrated his amazing love for us. Jesus said this, You you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Jesus said, hey, come and remain in me. And I, this is where life happens. This is where flourishing happens. The call to abide then is an invitation to enjoy him, to delight in him, to hope in him, to live in him, to walk day by day in him, not to earn God's love, but to rest in it. Because in Christ we have it already. As we remain in our confession, our trust, we will have this solid confidence. The person and work of Christ demonstrates and assures us of our confidence. He says, little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame at his coming. I think a lot of us hold shame as a common emotion. 
I bet that's true for a lot of people in this room. I know it's true for me. Some of that is even shame before God. Sometimes it's before others. But as we abide in Him, as we remember that God sees us as we truly are, He welcomes us. And as we rest in Him and learn how to walk in Him, when He comes, when He returns, we won't go, oh, not ready. Got to put those away. But rather, that'd be a celebration. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what Maranatha means, right? If you don't know that, that's why the church is named Maranatha. Hey, it's an old prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. That we would actually welcome him in confidence because we abide in him. Friend, what are you abiding in? Where's your confidence? Again, I'm, I'm going to tick through some very basic, probably, you know, cliched things, but I want you to honestly look. What are you resting in? Your career? Your health? Approval from peers? Your lineage, your family? The, inter- the internet? What are you resting in? What are you looking for confidence in? What are you looking for satisfaction in? Maybe you're abiding in this little boutique lifestyle and life that you're cultivating, curating for yourself. Thinking that if I have a little piece of here, a little piece of there, a little piece of this, and then I'll be good. Like these are, none of these things are necessarily bad in themselves, but they will not satisfy. John is saying, to remain in the thing that will satisfy, that gives us a confidence and assurance of not only of what is to come, but who we are right now. And this confidence then, that, that when Christ returns, that we would receive him in joy, it also cuts another way. That if we do not abide in Christ, you will have no such confidence. That there is no confidence before God. You cannot stand before him on your own merits. Only in Christ. Are you shaken? Do you doubt your standing before God? I invite you to look to Jesus. Find in Christ your assurance before God. For when you look to Christ and, and, and trust him, find your life in him, then you can rest in the truth that you are now a child of God. John says our confidence comes with who we are now, but but there's even something more, that there is more to come in verse 2 of chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. John writes to remind his, his, this early church and then also us, that God's children have a better future than any amount of special knowledge or, or the things of the world can offer. They had a promise of God himself that Christ is coming back. Our, our, it wasn't a wishful thinking or maybe this way will work out for us. Rather, it's grounded in Jesus and his finished work. See, this is our hope, that we will see Jesus as he is. 
Brothers and sisters, when we see Jesus as he truly is, it always changes us. That's also why the community groups are going through the signs of Jesus in John's gospel. Because the signs point to the thing that is significant. And as we see the signs, they point to Jesus. And we want to see him truly and correctly. So when we see him with eyes of faith, we're transferred from being children of men to becoming children of God. In a similar way, when we see him with our very eyes, we will be transformed. We will be like him in his resurrection, just like um, in, in our body as he is in his. Look, the New Testament never actually spells out what this will look like ultimately. It gives us details here and there, but we don't get a full picture Paul says of the future of those who were loved by God and love God in 1 Corinthians 2.9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, it's going to blow your mind. At the end of the same letter, Paul says, we will be changed in an instant when Christ returns. It's 1 Corinthians 15. Look, we can gather from other places that this means that we will be perfect. We will be made sinless, without blemish. We won't be weak and broken. We'll be whole, be fully alive, we'll be free from sin. That, that sadness, that God will actually take our tears and wipe them. One writer in a book called Prayer in the Night, Tish Harrison Warren, I highly recommend it. She talks about there might be a chance that this is her speculating, but that God would give us one good cry before him. That we would be able to mourn and grieve and lament. And then he would say, now, now, child. And wipe that last tear. Collect them for us. And say, you're home. that the weight and the disappointments with our, this mortal flesh would be put away. We will be like Christ, and we will be with him. Not metaphorically, not esoterically, not just aesthetically. We, physical bodies with the physical Christ, face to face. Friends, John writes with experience. John has seen Jesus with his own eyes. Jesus, John saw Jesus transformed. I, there's, there's one, I think it's in Mark. It says that his, his robe was white, like, like you couldn't bleach it that white. I think that's so funny. Like that's how white it was. He was shining in all his glory. John saw that with his own eyes. He saw the resurrected Jesus. And, then, and even if we were just to turn a couple pages from our passage, we would see the revelation of John. We, he sees the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne in all fullness. He, he's likely 90 years old at this point or more. Or, or he's very late in age. John had tested this hope daily and had never found it lacking. John says this is on good evidence. Not only we're children now, but we have a beautiful hope of what's to come. It's not just this pie in the sky, I hope this happens type hope. 
It isn't just tricking ourselves to get by and press on. Often I think that's what our hope is. It's just kind of, it, when, it, when it's in temporal things, well, I hope, and that's just going to keep our motor going. You see, hope and faith are linked, and they feed each other in a, in a beautiful feedback loop. And they're not, it's not based on our own willpower, but on who God is and what God has accomplished. A famous uh, uh, theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, says this, Hope is nothing else than the expectation of those things which faith has believed to have been, pro- been truly promised by God. Hope is nothing else than the expectation of those things which faith has believed to have been truly promised by God. Faith is the foundation upon which hope rests. Hope nourishes and sustains faith. You see, faith is taking God at his word, and then hope is that now our walking out God's word according to his promises, believing that it will come to pass. But it isn't this type of cross your finger, hope it happens, like wish, wish dreams. Like we hope are in a lot of things, the stock market, this past week I think should change our, our hope in that. We think about our career. Just talk to someone who's been laid off. That my hope is in my career. Our hope in is our, our health. We often hope in our health. Well, I work out, I eat well, I, I, you know, I do the things. Talk to someone who just got off the phone with their doctor and just was told they have cancer. Or they got a phone call and said a loved one is dead. The hope we have in Christ is, is a hope that's grounded in the finished work of Jesus. The hope for what is to come is grounded in what Jesus has done in the p- past, which then secures us for the present. He has loved us. He has called us. He's died. He died while we were yet his enemies. He rose. He welcomes. He now intercedes. Our hope then is in the one who has already shown time and time again his faithfulness. Like I, I asked earlier, how would knowing the future, future change you? You see, having this new identity from God, having this certain hope reframes our daily life. Knowing who we are in Christ and having a confident hope for our future will impact our daily lives. John's saying to us, consider these things because it helps us to live life backwards, starting with the future and looking back into our current moment, which is then grounded in the finished work of Jesus, the past. So if we're to rest in who we are in Christ as children of God, hope in what is to come, now that helps us to now press in to Jesus all the more by becoming who we already are in him. Look at verse 29 of chapter 2. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Scoot your eye down to 3.3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Um, People always tell you this. You're going to become like your parents, right? I notice it in the weirdest spots. I notice it the way that I hold the steering wheel sometimes in the car. And I go, my dad held the steering wheel just that same way. And I remember, and I I was about 22, and I really, like, the moments were really hitting. It's like, 
oh no, I, I'm turning into my dad. And I remember, what you need to know about my dad is my dad makes some funny noises. My dad kind of grunts a lot and uh, non-words he uses. So if he's trying to like do labor and uh, you know, he can't get any, right? and if he, if he doesn't hear you, it's never excuse me, or say that again, it's ha, huh? right? So in my 20s, noticing that I'm becoming more and more like my dad, and I go to my brother Jason, I say, hey Jay, have you ever noticed that we're becoming more and more like dad? He looks at me and goes, ha, huh? I was like, never mind. Do you know why? Because we're their offspring. We share their DNA. We've been, we've been shaped by their influence. We've seen them our whole lives. In the same way, being born of God results in loving the things that God loves. Being born of God changes us. In other words, you have this hope. We, have, we are children of God, and we will be like him at his appearing. Because we're children of God now, therefore live as you live into what you are. If you are a child of God now, live into that. Press into that. He says, purify yourself as he is pure. Note the order. It is not because we've been born of him that we can, uh, it, it is, I'm sorry, it is because that we've been born of him already that we can purify ourselves as he is pure. As we abide in him, we will learn to practice what Jesus preaches, what, uh, a phrase that Michael kept using, Pastor Michael. The, the paradox is here. We become what we already are in Christ. We are not yet what we will be, and we strive to show ourselves approved. This striving is, uh, is this is striving and growth that is rooted in Jesus. And it's on, on account of what he has accomplished for us on the cross and in his resurrection, that it actually now transforms us into the image of Christ. One pastor says this, we look to the cross and the second coming of Christ and remember that Christ has done everything for our redemption. Purity and our zeal, we even read that from 1 Corinthians 1. Our holiness our yearning to be with Jesus and to see Jesus is intended to make us more like Jesus in holiness. Looking forward to Christ will produce growth in healthy followers of Jesus. I'm going to wrap up in just a minute. Let's try to put some practical legs on this. When we rest in who we are and live in light of our hope, how are we changed? I, I have three areas that I just want to highlight. There's more. But in our work, if we rest in who we are, in our identity in Jesus, well, then my work no longer defines me. I'm not struggling to be approved by my boss, to be accepted by my peers. I'm not racked with anxiety every time they have to restructure. But I also realize that this work 
It's an opportunity that's been given to me as a gift. And I can now use it as an expression of my hope that God is actually making all things new. That because I have this hope in Christ that is for certain, I can actually work and serve and use my gifts to bring about good. Those that are creating internet pages with all the the, the network support, you can serve the good by your work, by helping people to access things in the world easier. Those who teach, you can actually teach and, and, and seek to care and, and, and nurture and cultivate students. Those who work in restaurants, you can serve and, 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 and say, I, I'm, I'm helping to feed my neighbor. Do you see who we are? This thing isn't me. But it's an expression of who I am in Christ that, that God's given me now. I can use it for the flourishing of others. And it gives me now new perspective, new priorities, new boundaries. It gives my work purpose, whether it's in a boardroom or playing board games on the floor with your child. That that we can see this work that God's called us to as a gift. And that it's a means by which he's using to purify me, to sanctify me, to grow me. As I'm rooted in him, with a hope for what's to come, it changes my today. How does it work relationally? Like we all show up in different ways. We can be shapeshifters. We're at work a type of person, we're at home a type of person, and we're here like a type of person. Again, I, I bet many of us come in wearing masks. not saying that we manipulate people uh, out of malice intention. But we do hide often because of the shame. If you only knew who I really was. Or, 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 we, or we, we play this game, we fake it till we make it. But in all these, we, we don't have then a settled identity. But if we abide in Jesus, God has already given us one. And in so doing, we can be honest about our shortcomings. Have you ever noticed how bluntly honest Paul is about his shortcomings? That he chased down Christians? Peter, I mean, if you're you're one of the apostles, you're going to scrub some stuff out of the the Gospels because you don't want people to really know what you did. Peter leaves it all out there. Isn't, we can be honest. We can say, I'm broken. But we can also be confident in our belovedness. That we are loved by God. Uh, I've, used, I've shared this before, but there's a church in Nashville called Emmanuel uh, Church in Nashville. And I, and I, I love the pastor there. And I, I read a lot of his stuff. And uh, they have a mantra at their church. And, and it goes like this. I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. As we think about who we are then relationally, like, I realize I'm broken, and I make mistakes, and I fumble, and I stumble, and I, and I sin. I can recognize that I'm an idiot. 
But I can also remember, because of Jesus, my future is incredibly bright. I have a new identity with a greater hope. And the good news is now anyone can get in on this. This then shakes out in our lives because now when, when we see ourselves in it truly before God, now we can treat others with, with, with greater empathy, with generosity, with honesty and authenticity. We can actually love them practically. We would see that all people, no matter where they are, there are no little people, so to speak. Only image bearers of God who are worthy of love, grace, mercy, and care we would actually then begin to live out our faith in a daily life when we recognize that God has shown his love for me when I didn't deserve it, given me a new hope, a new identity, and now sends me out into the world. Lastly and briefly, I know I've been talking a long time, in our own holiness, in our own personal walk, how does this shake out? Again, I can be honest with myself and my sin. I don't need to sugarcoat it. I can recognize I'm broken and I'm sinful. But again, this is not the totality of my identity. I'm also reminded that I'm a child of God. I'm, I'm beloved. And in Jesus, I'm complete. I've been made righteous. I've been made new. He has made me a kingdom of a child of his own kingdom. In one sense, we can say that I'm in Christ, I'm made into nobility. As his child, he has given me himself and his own spirit to help and guide me. That, that's who I truly am. A saint and a sinner, forgiven by God, made new in Christ. And when I remember this about myself, I'm helped by the remembrance that God is not yet finished with me. But he has promised to finish the work that he began. To bring it to completion, Paul writes in Philippians. Look, there's going to be fits and starts. We're going to stumble. But I hope and hold fast to the promise that one day there will no longer be an inward struggle. There will be a day when his kingdom will reign in my heart completely and in the world around me. And so I press on towards that goal. That's what we've been learning about through Pastor Michael. That we would press into this with the hope of what God is at work doing. When I consider this, I can now lean into my identity, my, my, this nobility, my future, and I can live today as a new creation dependent on the Holy Spirit. And moment by moment say, I want to remain in you, remain in who I am, knowing that the hope that I have and that you are with me today for this moment. And I want to walk in light of who you've made me to be. Because as we walk this way, the Lord helps us. And he conforms us into the image of his son. And we're given then a confidence for when Christ returns. That is, our abiding in Jesus assures us, comforts us, it compels us to live this day in light of that great day. Not trying to earn salvation. And this hope for ourselves, but because it's already ours in Christ. So, final point, final thing. Where are you? What's your confidence in? Is it in Jesus? If not, you're standing on the sand in Ocean City. It's sinking. But if it's in Christ, it's on bedrock. That's where your new identity is found. That's where hope truly 
lives. And it's hope that actually strengthens you for the day. Friend, if you have trusted in Christ, take heart because you're a child of God now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But when he appears, we will be like him. We will put off this mortal, perishable body and we will shine in the light of his glory. So let's press on to that goal. Let's purify ourselves as he, our heavenly father, is pure, living this day in light of that great day. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us a new identity in Christ. You've given us a hope that cannot be taken and is unshakable and is sure. I pray that we would we would be shaped by this identity, grounded in this hope, so that we would live faithfully day by day. And if there are those who have never trusted Christ, that are relying on something else, even if they've been at ch- in this setting, hearing this type of sermon a million times before, Lord, I pray that your spirit would open their eyes to see and that they would find their confidence in Christ and Christ alone. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.